0: Capital
1: Market Insights from ICMA. Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Asset Management and Investors Council of the International Capital Market Association. My name is Oliver Tinkler, Senior Director of ICMA and Head of Press and Communications. ICMA is one of the few global trade associations with representation from both the buy side and the sell side. And AMIC is ICMA's dedicated forum representing the views of its buy side members. AMIC members are asset managers, institutional investors, private banks, pension funds, and insurance companies, among others. Today, I'm grateful to be joined again by Bob Parker, former chairman of AMIC and a senior advisor to ICMA, and also by Dr. Max Costelli, managing director, head of strategy and advice, global sovereign markets for UBS asset management. Max is also co-chair of the AMIC executive committee. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me today. diving straight in if we could start with global equity markets and and us stocks in particular which continued to rally from a low in late october 2023 what what do you make of this run and you know are we in danger of seeing a bubble
2: um, I think just to quantify the move that we have seen since late October, uh, the S&P 500 um, is up over 20% of the, at, at the time of uh, this podcast, recording this podcast, uh, and the NASDAQ is up about uh, 25%. If one looks at year-on-year figures, we see actually some very interesting differences So, you know, whereas year on year, the S&P is up, um, as we talk, around 25%. uh, The NASDAQ, in fact, you know, the computer or or tech heavy uh, index is up uh, over 35%. But just to emphasize how this equity market rally has been led by large cap tech sectors... In contrast, you know, the real estate sector, the REITs index, in fact, over the last year is down by 5%. The bank index has been under severe pressure and, you know, the KBW bank index is down by over 10%. And the very broad index, focusing on mid-cap and to some extent small-cap stocks, the Russell 2000, uh, over the last year is only up 6%. So I think you no know, conclusion number one is, yes, we've had an equity market rally, but uh, that has been a very concentrated equity market rally amongst you know, the large cap tech sectors. You no, know, Is it an equity market bubble? Well, the tech valuation, if we look at the price earnings ratio, is close to 30. That's obviously expensive. Uh, for the broader market, the S&P, the price earnings ratio is about 20. So it's certainly expensive, but compared with previous times when we've had clear market bubbles, um, I would say we're not yet in what would be defined as you know definitely bubble territory. I would also just say that if one looks at investor leverage, uh, it is still very low indeed. So investors have been putting... Uh, positions into the tech sector, been putting cash into the tech sector, uh, but they haven't been doing it using leverage. And you know, the use of leverage is a classic indicator of a market bubble. So you now I'll pass on to Max for his comments. But um, my view is that yes, the U.S. market is expensive, uh, but I wouldn't say it has the characteristics of a classic bubble. Uh, but the caveat is, it doesn't have those characteristics yet.
0: Thanks, Bob. And uh, I I agree with uh, the statement that we are not in a bubble. I mean, if you look at our asset allocation views, we retain an optimistic view on the global economy and for global stock uh, in the medium term, which is, of course, in line with our conviction that we are in a softish lending scenario. But tactically, we believe it is time uh, maybe to press pause on what has been uh, a historical strong uh, equity rally. I mean, there are several indications that, uh, that there is a, a need for a pause. First of all, on the macro level, on the inflation front, uh, the market has been disappointed by the sort of postponement uh, in terms of uh, interest rate reduction. We still believe that interest rate will come down, but maybe they will not come down as fast and in the same magnitude that we market were expecting in the last quarter of um, 2023. So uh, I would say constructive view, medium term, but definitely from a tactical perspective, we just move to neutral with regards to equity. So no bubble, but caution on the equity market at the moment.
1: Thanks for that. So I mean, turning to credit markets and investment grade bonds, here we have a similar, similar situation in a way where investment grade bonds spreads are narrowing with strong investment demand. But in contrast, say triple C spreads are widening. Why? Why do you think that is?
2: I think a number of factors. Um, I think the first factor is let's not forget that equity markets and credit markets are highly correlated. So, the fact that we have had tightening spreads or narrowing spreads in investment grade markets and the higher quality end of the high yield market, Ie or sort of double B single B, there. Uh, that tightening in spreads obviously has been one factor supporting global equity markets. Uh, That spread tightening is against a background of generally low leverage in the corporate sector, uh, strong investor demand for investment grade and higher quality high yield uh, bonds. And we've seen that very clearly at the start of 2024, with very powerful investor cash flows going into uh, the credit markets and um, the investment group, particularly the investment grade uh, bond markets. Um, and also, well, let's not forget, coming back to Max's comment about the US having a soft landing and arguably very poor economic numbers in Europe starting to be less bad. I wouldn't say that we would define it as a European recovery, but certainly the numbers are looking less dire. Um, so corporate against that background that economic background which I think is slightly more positive Uh, corporate earnings growth in 2024 and associated with that corporate cash flows uh, are all looking quite positive so that's the good news now the bad news which you touched on Oliver is the triple c area in the high yield market is under pressure uh, as we talk, the average yield on triple C bonds in US dollars uh, is around 13.6%. Uh, that is a spread relative to government bonds of over 10%. There we are seeing pressure, we are seeing default rates rise. Uh, and one subsector of that is obviously the real estate market. And whereas residential real estate generally Um, is looking reasonably strong. China's the obvious exception. Um, But in Europe and the States, residential real estate is... Uh, not showing signs of stress, but in contrast, commercial real estate, and most notably the office real estate sector, uh, is under pressure. Um, you know, vacancy rates are high, default rates are rising, uh, and you know, issuers in the real estate sector, commercial real estate, uh, default rates are rising there, uh, and therefore. We've got this divergence in credit markets between uh, investment grade where we're seeing very low default rates, good demand supply conditions. But at the weaker end of high yield and the, uh, particularly the real estate sector, we are seeing problems. And I think those problems do
0: continue.
1: And Max, anything from from your side? What are you what are you saying?
0: Yeah, I mean, we actually recently published, really, literally, a few few days ago, uh, what we call a fixed income default study, which is a little bit our uh, sort of uh, driving uh, analysis for the um, for the corporate bond market, for the credit market. And actually, we, the, the 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 results of the study are very interesting. We are not forecasting a dramatic increase in the default rate across the board. Just to give some numbers and put things into perspective, for instance, we expect uh, in developed markets that the default will be broadly unchanged from, from last year and remain below uh, long-term trends. For instance, the euro yield, we have 3%, the US yield, we have 3.4%. In Asia, excluding Japan, things look a little bit better when, uh, with the exception of China, whether our projected default rate increase in the high yield space arrive at 11%, which is, of course, a reflection of what Bob just mentioned, the situation in the, in the real estate market. So overall, we have a, a quite, a, quite a positive view about credits, which is also a reflection of what you mentioned at the beginning, about the, Olivier, about the demand. There is definitely strong demand from investors on fixed income, They're looking at where they can extract the higher uh, return. And we are seeing uh, definitely interest for uh, credits, for corporate bonds, but also for high yield. But I will also include emerging market uh, debt in that picture, in the sense that emerging market debt as well has a pretty good and solid expected return for 2024 after a very good 2023. Of course, there is a, a caveat here that we need to mention. It depends very much what type of economy we're going to be in in uh, during 2024. As I said, our baseline scenario is a softish landing one. But uh, of course, uh, there is still a discussion. and There is still actually a pretty large camp across the industry, which believe that ultimately the US will suffer a recession as a result of the increasing rates, which will start uh, having full impact during the course of the year. As I said, this is not our baseline, but it's a scenario that we need to consider. And this, of course, would put uh, more pressure on uh, on credits if that mater- that type of scenario materialize
1: thanks for that and, and and also that i suppose that stability extends to both foreign exchange and and government paper as well which is which looks looks relatively stable at the moment is your outlook similarly kind of sanguine for for those markets
2: um, I think, first of all, just on a comment on the foreign exchange markets, and foreign exchange market volatility has remained low. Uh, and, you know, one clear indicator of that is if you look at the trade-weighted index uh, of the US dollar over the last year, that is down by only 0.5%, uh, which, you know, by historical standards, that is a very small move indeed if we look at you know key uh, fx relationships like dollar euro you know we've recently you know traded very narrowly around 1.08 and you know if one looks at the outlook for you know the us economy which max touched on the outlook for ecb and fed policy that you know the dollar is reasonably well supported at the moment and you know the case for a major move, either up or down in the U.S. dollar against the euro, uh, frankly, is not clear. Um, So, you know, my own view is that we will see the dollar still supported at around current levels. Uh, If anything, uh, in the short term, uh, short term, March and April, uh, the U.S. dollar could uh, see some moderate further appreciation. Uh, One currency which clearly... Uh, has seen some weakness recently, has been the Japanese yen, uh, you know, trading testing yet again uh, 150 to the U.S. dollar, uh, and that's clearly just a function of Bank of Japan policy, with the Bank of Japan moving very slowly uh, in tightening monetary policy, um, and clearly giving guidance that any increase in interest rates in in Japan, yes, it's going to happen, but it's going to be delayed and it's going to be very gradual. So. Short positions have been built up by investors and traders in the yen. But other than that, positioning in foreign exchange markets is um, is very limited. Um, I'll pass on to Max to comment on either more on FX, but uh, perhaps also on the fixed income government bond markets.
0: Thank you, Bob. I mean, on the FX, uh, I, I, I start from saying that uh, I, over the years we have been calling for a reversal in the U.S. dollar strength many times. So, I think it is what Bob just said that is very unclear. To be honest, I think it's very difficult to make a forecast. I mean, our view is that probably the dollar touched the peak, and the expectation would be for the dollar to soften. But here is not just a question of interest rate differential and the fact that the interest rate in the US probably touched peak, and eventually, from this level, they will come down. We should not also forget about the geopolitics surrounding the US dollar. We know that there is a lot of debate in emerging markets about reducing their exposure to the dollar. We have the U.S. presidential election coming up. I can see a lot of factors which could contribute, particularly if the U.S. starts slowing down, for instance, as well in 2024, the U.S. dollar might decline from the current level. But as I said, because of this host of factors influencing the exchange rate of of the leading sovereign currency in the world, I think it's very difficult to make a call. What is remarkable, however, is that if you think about uh, the impact of two factors in the last two years, the strength of the dollar and the dramatic increase in U.S. interest rates, actually so far, the impact has been relatively muted. Think about emerging markets. There was a view, I don't know if you remember the taper tantrum, it was enough to talk about raising interest rate for creating panic about investors. We haven't seen that. So there is definitely a lot of resilience. So I think if the dollar does not come down from the current level, it will be not necessarily a factor of instability for global markets. Mm -hmm. On the fixed income side, I think it is an interesting moment that we are in. We had basically, despite closing on their inflation target, as we saw very clearly during the last quarter of 2023, US and European central bankers appeared pretty hesitant, I would say, to cut rates. Mm-hmm. And the, the question is, uh, is why? Probably there is a little bit of a fear that in the next few months, uh, the reading on inflation might not be as good as it was in the last quarter of 2023. But I think at the same time, there is a view on the, from the central bankers that they don't want to find themselves in a situation where they loosen too early and then they are forced to tighten again should inflation not come down uh, or not continue coming down towards target, as has been the case in the last quarter uh, of, the, of, the, of the last year. What does it mean this for fixed income market? We have a little bit, uh, the big rally that we had in the last quarter was uh, crucial, because basically move fixed income from negative to positive return for the year. We should not forget that the, the, even if interest rates do not come down significantly, from the current level because central banks want to see more clear evidence of inflation going down to two and as well no sort of evidence of wage price spiral type of situation. I mean, the expected return, the carry of fixed income is significant. So I don't think this will create instability in the market. Of course, if interest rates come down, this will be positive for fixed income market because in addition to the carry you will also have some uh, significant capital gain particularly on long duration bonds that's our view at the moment so fixed income definitely is still a very attractive regardless of how much and how fast interest rate come down largely because of the income that you can generate in that
1: asset class you both kind of can kind of touched on the the uh, i suppose the macro situation um but kind of looking and kind of digging into it further, um, you know, what, what's your outlook on inflation and growth? And, you know, I suppose as a response, what do you expect from the, the central banks?
2: Um, let me just start by uh, saying that, you know, recently we have had upgraded uh, forecasts from both the IMF and uh, the OECD. Um, and, you know, I think the themes from both official organizations there are very clear indeed. That is to say they have upgraded their forecast for US growth this year uh, to over 2%. Uh, they, however, are still cautious um, on the eurozone. Uh, you know, they're forecasting around 0.9% uh, growth for the eurozone um, and um, I would argue they are unduly cautious or pessimistic on uh, two key economies, the UK and uh, Japan, and they are likewise or fairly cautious on the extent um, of the Chinese um, recovery. So you know they're forecasting approximately four and a half percent, four point six percent growth for for China this year. Um, You know, one economy which increasingly we will be talking about more in the future is India, where both the IMF and the OECD remain very positive on 6% plus growth in India. And, you know, one needs to emphasize that India plus uh, the Asian countries uh, will be the growth driver in the global economy in 2024 and potentially also uh, in 2025. Um, I would argue that um, the IMF and the OECD are probably too pessimistic on uh, Europe and, uh, for that matter, Japan. Uh, And one key factor there um, is that in contrast to 2022 and 2023, when consumption was under pressure because real earnings were negative, uh, with the fall in inflation and with uh, with labour markets still reasonably tight, Uh, we're seeing a clear improvement uh, in consumer spending trends. So, you know, my own view is actually that the outcome for growth um, is probably going to be revised upwards for Europe and and also for Japan. Uh, The bad news is that the decline in inflation that we have seen, uh, probably that decline now slows down. And, you know, there is a risk that, you know, US and European inflation... Uh, sort of stabilizes around two and a half percent. Potentially, also we don't, we're around three percent. Um, i.e., that we don't see any further progress in cutting inflation, uh, which in turn makes uh, central bankers rather cautious about cutting interest rates. But Max, over to you to see if you agree with that. Uh,
0: broadly, I agree. I just to put some numbers behind this. If you look at the end of two thousand twenty-three. Core PCE inflation ended 2023 below the federal target of 1.9 percent when you look at on a on a six months annualized basis, and actually Q4 GDP growth came stronger than expected at 3.3. That's, I think, the background of the increase in the forecast, which of the by the IMF, we, which uh, uh, was just mentioned. This is largely due to the resilience and to the better than expected growth in the US at the end of the year. Um, this scenario, uh, in our view, is, uh, let's say, close to as good as it gets. Indeed, actually, as, uh, uh, as it was pointed out, uh, we project three months and six months analyzed reading of inflation to accelerate temporarily in the next few months. So this will uh, reduce the ability, of, say, of the Fed to aggressively cut rates. Uh, and I share uh, Bob view that we might end up in a sort of around the 3% type of inflation. However, I would like to stress that we should not forget where we are coming from. I mean, I remember one year ago that there was a, a strong discussion about whether inflation was transitory or we were in a sort of a regime shift similar to what we experienced in the 70s with commodity price going up, price going up, wages starting to go up, and then of course ending in sort of a very negative scenario of a spiral between wages and price. I think that scenario, I believe is out of the picture for the moment, but still I believe that the market probably was too optimistic about uh, rate cuts at the end of last year. And this might also explain why now that this optimism is evaporating, why the market are moving a little bit more sidelines without great conviction in one direction or, or, or in another. About China, very important. I think we all discuss a lot about decoupling, uh, uh, reducing exposure to China, but the reality is that the size China matters. The growth of China matters a lot for the global economy. I was looking at some number for a paper that I'm doing on the emerging markets. When you take China out of the emerging market, you see a completely different picture. So China is the leading emerging market. Is it what is happening in China? I believe that there are cyclical and structural factors at play. The cyclical factor you might expect eventually to be in some way reduced thanks to more conviction by Chinese households to consume after the COVID restriction and also more policy action. This could give a little bit of a boost to China later in the year, but of course, the concern are more on the structural side, so medium-long term. What is the growth potential of China, given the headwinds that China is facing, which go beyond the problem of the real estate sector, which are clearly linked to a new growth model, which still does not appear to, have, to be a major uh, sort of powerhouse in terms
1: of growth. That's great. Thank, thanks very much for that, Max. If I could kind of turn to geopolitics, which I you know, I wonder is the elephant in the room here because obviously 2024, there are going to be, well, from a UK perspective, a potential of a UK election and also, you know, the, the, the U S election. Are markets and investors being too complacent? Is there not a concern that this could kind of upset, uh, this, this current rally, this current kind of strengthening.
2: Um, We've been living with three geopolitical risks for some time now, um, namely uh, the Ukraine war, um, which, you know, the current uh, week is actually the second anniversary of, uh, of that uh, war. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, tension uh, in the Middle East and since October, um, obviously the, uh, the conflict in Gaza. Um, And then thirdly, uh, following and particularly following the Taiwanese election in early January, uh, you know, the potential for uh, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Um, So those are sort of three big geopolitical risk factors that uh, investors are worried about. Uh, You know, so far, um, and, you know, I take the view that this will probably continue, uh, the impact and the pressure point here is primarily uh, on commodity prices. And, you know, the Middle East, we've seen some upward pressure on oil prices, but it's been very limited. Um, you know, Brent is trading just over $80 per barrel. So, you know, the from those big three geopolitical risk factors, um, you know, we actually haven't seen much impact on uh, on global capital markets, most notably on commodity markets. Um, Oliver, you refer to you know 2024 being a year uh, of election in a number of countries. Um, I don't think the UK election, where you know the opinion polls are very clear, which is we will move to a Labour government. I'd be surprised if that has any impact on capital markets. Uh, in Europe, however, we do have very important European elections in June. Uh, there looks at the moment, if you believe the opinion polls, and I suggest we do, uh, there looks as though there's going to be a shift in favour of uh, the right-wing parties, uh, most notably parties like you know, AFD in Germany. And, you know, that could result in policy gridlock in the European Parliament and potentially uh, in Brussels as well. So that's one risk factor, which I don't think investors are looking at at the moment. But certainly, as we approach those June elections in Europe, it could be a factor in European markets. Uh, And then obviously, moving back to the States, we had the presidential election uh, in November Uh, At the moment, the opinion polls are reasonably clear, which is that Trump will get the nomination for uh, the Republican Party uh, to be their candidate. And Trump is ahead of Biden in the opinion polls uh, for the presidential election. Um, Now, obviously, we have, as investors, a high degree of uncertainty as to what a Trump presidency uh, would change in terms of policy, but if one looks at the statements from Trump... Uh, and his associates more recently. You know, the policy initiatives are going to be much tougher on immigration. That means tighter US labor markets and is potentially inflationary. There is a proposal to increase uh, import tariffs. Likewise, that is inflationary and would be negative for global trade growth. Uh, And obviously, there are statements of cutting back uh, support for NATO. So that, in turn, puts more pressure on other NATO countries, most notably Europe, to increase defence spending. So those are the main issues of a Trump presidency. And uh, obviously, it's a long way off until November. But having said that, investors are already... Uh, you know, starting to think about the implications of a Trump presidency. Um, and it implies probably a higher degree of caution in uh, global capital markets in the second half of this year. But Max, what's your view and the UBS view, please?
0: I mean, in terms of, I agree with you that uh, if you look at uh, geopolitics, and I'm using geopolitics in a very broad sense here, including everything, uh, all the hot spot that you see around the world, so far, the impact that we've seen has been, as Bob mentioned, via the commodity market. Think about the impact of Ukraine work on the energy sector in Europe. I believe there is a second impact which is already visible, which is the impact of the U.S.-China confrontation. Think about the dramatic drop in FDI in China, which I believe are, of course, linked to the sort of uh, Uh, lower than expected recovery in the Chinese economy, but I believe the geopolitical factors also matter as corporate reassess the risk of investing in China. But overall, if you think about the level of geopolitical tension that we we had over the last few years, I agree with Bob that the impact on market has been relatively limited so far. Actually, last year was a very good year for equity despite a lot of issues, including, of course, the ongoing conflict in, uh, in the Middle East. I believe that the investors are also very much focused more eventually on the long, medium-long-term implication of geopolitics, which I believe are the most important ones. This would, uh, would uh, require a separate conversation, but just to make an example, think about uh, the end of the peace dividend and the increase in military expenditure that, in a way or another, is happening around the world, from Australia to Europe, US, and uh, uh, countries uh, around the world. I think this will put a lot of pressure on that level. So this means there will be much less room for maneuver by government, for instance, to intervene in the labor market or during period of economic weakness. So this type of implication really, really matter a lot, because I think they have the potential to have uh, an impact on inflation and growth. As everybody agreed that the impact on inflation of geopolitics over the long term is going to be positive in the sense that it will push up inflation rate a little bit more than what has been the case before, largely via also the debt level. And the second, um, and of course, uh, the, uh, the over impact is uh, more uh, uh, on growth, it creates a lot of uncertainty. So we are also going to see think about international trade, which has already plateaued in terms of uh, share of GDP. And uh, it seems to me that he has, uh, he has lost uh, the speed that he used to have in the past. So these are all geopolitically related factors. The question is that I believe instead over the years, looking a little bit more short term, I think the main source of instability as Bob pointed out is likely to come more from domestic political development rather than from international one. And that the US election are one. this is very interesting. I've been talking about this with many investor What if Trump wins? What is the impact? And actually, the view is mixed. There is is a view that a Trump victory might not necessarily be bad for, uh, for instance, equity markets. We should not forget that Trump has this uh, look at equity market very closely uh, and he cares Mm -hmm. about equity market. And secondly, his program is uh, for immediate uh, uh, cuts, for instance, in taxation, which normally are associated with the equity market doing well. But I think when you look at again and you, you switch from the short to the medium long term, I think in the end that the, the Trump victory might be negative because you start to see maybe pressure on the Federal Reserve independence. You might start to see more, as, as Bob mentioned, more international tension, like for instance pressure on NATO. So I think that we have this sort of short term versus medium long term implication. Final point about European uh, politics, absolutely. I think uh, Europe is at a turning point here, because basically, if the poll are confirmed, we might see a shift in the majority, which is so far is a sort of a grand coalition type of uh, majority, which basically tends to become a very, uh, in a sense, a very uh, balanced in terms of the policy that they take. But I believe that we might face a situation where instead we're going to see a right center type of uh, uh, leadership, which, of course, would. would accelerate some of the agenda points which are being pushed by the right wing, which is immigration. But as well, we should not forget about something that is very in the heart of AMIC, for instance, which is the completion of the Capital Market Union and the financial integration of Europe, which might become a victim of this idea that we need to reduce the power of European institutions vis-à-vis national governments. I think this type of long-term implication for me are much more important than the short one uh, and the volatility associated to the presidential uh, US, U.S. election and the European parliamentary election.
2: Hmm. Actually, I'd just like to quickly pick up, before we close, Oliver, I'd just like to pick up on uh, one point that Max made, um, which is very close to AMIC and ICMA's um, strategy and positioning in markets, which is that we have been arguing and Whoever is um, listening on this podcast from um, either the European Commission or from national regulators, uh, we have been arguing for many years about the importance of capital markets union uh, in Europe, um, and you know it's obviously disappointing that progress on capital markets union has been slow far too slow uh, and that means that opportunities have been missed and you know i know i'm saying exactly the same as you know many of the uh you know the leaders in the european commission so uh, i think that 2024 2025 the big opportunity for the for the european union is to really make some progress on capital markets union and i think we all have to accept the progress has been inadequate so far anyway that's my uh, the end of my uh, my policy statement for this podcast <laughs>
1: <laughs> well that's great i think what we've got there is a pretty comprehensive summary we've we've run around the globe kind of a number a number of times which is which is fantastic so uh, yeah thanks again bob and max for the all fascinating insights on all things markets, asset classes, and, and geopolitics. Um, we look forward to recording the next AMIC podcast soon, covering the market. So please uh, yeah, keep keep your eyes open for that one. And if you'd like to contribute questions for our guests to tackle, please do get in touch with AMIC via the email at amic, amic, at icmagroup.org. Uh, the email address and additional contact information are also in the description of this podcast. So please do get in touch. But, gentlemen, again, thanks so much for your for your thoughts and for your, uh, your your comprehensive summary of of all things markets and geopolitics today. And until next time, thank you very much. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening. For more ICMA podcasts and further information on capital markets, please visit our website. ICNA Group dot ORG